You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Well, good morning to you all. Thanks for, again, worshiping with us uh, here on the second day of Christmas. And so if you're following along with the 12 days of Christmas, it's the second day. Two turtle doves is what you need to be given uh, your true love today. And so get those out and ready. Um, we are actually in the second day of Christmas Tide, uh, which is a season in the church calendar where we take 12 days to worship Jesus, to remember his incarnation, to celebrate the reality. And so our hope is as a people that Christmas isn't just something we celebrate on a singular day, but we take four weeks to prepare our hearts uh, by thinking about Advent and thinking about our longings for Jesus, the dissonance, the kind of unfulfilled longing that we want, these kind of unresolved expectations that we have as human beings in this world. And we talked about how Christ brings us love and how he brings us hope and joy and peace. And we want to be a people who anticipate that, where we sit in the tension. Uh, but over these 12 days of Christmas, during Christmas tide, where we really take time to celebrate the incarnation, celebrate the glory of God become man, and, and worship Jesus. And so that's what we want to do this morning, just for a couple minutes. Uh, we want to take a moment to think about how do we respond to the incarnation of the Son of God? How do we respond to this incredible act of love where God has intervened in human history? He saw us in our brokenness, in our need, in our longings, and he intervened uh, to bring us love, joy, hope, and peace. Something that we get to already taste right now, uh, through his first coming, through the presence of his spirit, but something that we still long for as we wait for him to come again. And so I want to look at just a passage uh, right on the heels of what we looked at for Christmas Eve, where we look at these three different responses to Jesus and ask this question, uh, how will I respond to the incarnation of the Son of God? How will I respond to the birth of Jesus? And so I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read from verse 1 all the way through verse 12. And just simply look at these few different responses and say, how could I and how am I and how will I respond? And so we are in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For, he, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word, the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. 
Uh, I want to just pay attention to this narrative. We're not going to unpack all the pieces of it. We're not going to unpack everything that's going on in the passage, but really to look at these three different responses. I don't know if you've ever been up to the mountains, maybe you're on a camping trip or, uh, you know, visiting, just kind of taking some time where you're away from all the city lights, you're kind of disconnected from any, any of the mountain towns. And if you just take a moment and at the nighttime, just look up in the nighttime sky, uh, for me, it is overwhelming. Uh, the number of stars that you can see, the kind of innumerable, kind of the amount of stars. You have small, faint stars, bright stars. At certain times of the year, you can see planets that are just kind of bright and shining above us. And, uh, and that kind of reality has always been really captivating to me when you get disconnected from the city lights. Now, throughout history, uh, when kind of pre-modern era in ancient times, when there were no city lights, uh, the reality of these heavenly luminaries that just kind of reign over the world, that populate the heavenly realm, that every civilization and every culture throughout history had to kind of reckon with these kind of overwhelmingly beautiful realities that kind of continue to hover and move above us. And throughout history, different religions have tried to make sense of what that means. And almost every culture, almost every ancient culture, sought to make some sense of a power and a transcendence that is above our reality. And among the kind of most developed thoughts around this were the astrologists that came from the East. In countries and regions east of Jerusalem, there were a number of ancient practices where very learned people would pay attention to the sky night after night, year after year, documenting and learning and paying attention. And so when something new came, when there's something that was different, they would try to make sense of that. They had different understandings of what different planets meant and different stars and different formations, different constellations. And they saw in the nighttime sky these realities in the heavenly realm that would have some earthly correspondence. They tried to make some sense of what was happening on earth by means of what they were seeing in the heavens above them. And so there are a group of astrologers or those who are studying the sky, looking for earthly correspondence that were paying attention into the, in the east and saw around the time of the birth of Jesus a new star. Um, something new, something extraordinary, something that was different. And it compelled them to get a group of people uh, to make their way to Judea, uh, to a land that was far west of them, a land that perhaps they had heard of. Most people think that these astrologers were coming from somewhere around Babylon and someplace from Mesopotamia, just the east, making their way to Judea because something that they saw resonated with them and indicated to them that there was a ruler that was coming in the land of Judea. Now, this is where the kind of nativity scene starts to steer us astray. We have this idea that, uh, you know, three wise men, potentially three kings, uh, make their way. Maybe it takes a night or two, but Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds are still still in the manger. There's some, you know, some goats and some lambs and some different animals. There's hay around there. And, uh, and you have this kind of moment where Mary, Joseph, little baby Jesus in a straw manger, shepherds, animals, and wise men are all present in this one moment, you know, maybe the same night or maybe within a couple days after the birth of Jesus. And that's just simply not what the Bible says. As much as it's a beautiful little scene, Christmas plays are awesome, love it. Uh, there are some times where we just need to take a step back and say, what does this passage say? Because this is, this is the passage right here that speaks of it. And what you see is these wise men, potentially a large caravan of people that had packed up their bags and made a long multi-month trip from the east to the land of Judea, likely arriving at least a couple months after the birth of Jesus. Again, I'm not trying to crush your nativity scene, just trying to be real with what the narrative says. Likely a couple months after the birth of Jesus, even in the passage, they're not in a manger, they're now in a home. Mary is, you know, just kind of getting used to 
this new baby, just kind of getting used to motherhood, a brand new mom, not sure where Joseph is in this moment, but this is a brand new family, a really significant moment. And so far in the scriptures, the only kind of news we have about visitors are the visitors of the shepherds that we read about in Luke, who came that very night as the angel of the Lord appeared to them and they made their way uh, to Jesus. And so this is probably a couple months later. There's probably many people. They had to be wealthy enough to afford to kind of like pack up their bags and take a trip, uh, a several month trip across the region and through countries. Uh, but they make their way towards Judea. Uh, they don't know exactly where this child is going to be born. So they make their way to the biggest city in the region. And that city is Jerusalem. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they go to the ruler of Jerusalem because they kind of assume if we see this from the east, then surely the residents of Jerusalem are paying attention. Surely there's going to be like this is going to be fanfare, big news. A new king has been born. Everybody should be paying attention. Everybody should be celebrating. Everybody should be kind of coming to give homage to or honor to this new baby king. And so you read about it in the passage that they make their way to Jerusalem. And they show, show up and start asking around. And the king of Jerusalem is a guy named Herod, who is Palestinian and Jewish, half Jewish, half Palestinian. It says, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. It says, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Uh, There was something about Herod who was known to be a ruthless king. He was known to have killed multiple of his sons and other family members. Uh, Even the Caesar of the time saw Herod as a ruthless king. He had a very, uh, again, a very negative reputation. And so something about these, these magi, the text says, these wise men from the east, these astrologers showing up and saying, hey, where's the new king? Uh, Felt like a very immediate threat to Herod. If there's a new king being born, this is a threat to his kingdom. Uh, This is an age where he would have passed off his kingdom to his children, and so some kind of new dynasty rising up would have been seen by him as an immediate threat. And that's what he felt troubled about. And says, all Jerusalem with him. So Herod feels some resistance to this news, and so he gathers together another group of people, all the scribes and the chief priests of the people, and he begins to ask them, what do the scriptures say? Where was the Christ supposed to be born? He wasn't sure, and so immediately these scribes and these Chief priests have an answer that he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And they refer back to the prophecy that this ruler would come out of Bethlehem, the small city, roughly maybe six miles from Jerusalem, six miles southwest of Jerusalem. And so Herod gets this news, and so he goes to these wise men, and he tells them secretly, go ahead and go look for him. And uh, when you find him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. I've actually seen that on a Christmas card. Uh, Go and search diligently for the child that I too may come and worship him, which is not a good thing to put on a Christmas card. So don't put that on yours uh, if you already have. Uh, Pay attention to the context of the passage because he wasn't pumped about worshiping Jesus. And so he sends them off and they go and they arrive finally uh, in Bethlehem and they find this baby and Mary in this home and immediately they fall down and worship him. It says, with exceedingly great joy. They're overwhelmed at who this Jesus is and what this arrival of this child means. And these people from a foreign country who weren't a part of the Jewish people, who had no attentiveness to the promises of God, no expectation of the coming Messiah, something about the Spirit of God in their life, in that moment, resonated with them that this child was worthy of their worship. 
And so they lay down their lives and they begin to offer to him these various gifts. Out of all of the treasures that they brought from their land, they begin to offer their treasures as gifts, kind of fulfilling all these prophecies that when the servant of God comes, the nations will bring their treasures and offer them in submission and for the glory of and for the kingdom of this new king. And so they worship him. And then they're warned in a dream not to go back and tell Herod, so they depart and go a different way. That's the story. And in the story, you see three different responses. You see Herod, who upon hearing about this new kingdom feels threatened. He had spent his life and his energy building and protecting his own kingdom, building and protecting his own sense of values. And when there's news of the arrival of a king that might threaten his kingdom, he has resistance. Resistance would be a light word for Herod. But before we start kind of kind of getting uh, kind of Herod in this kind of space that like, oh, I would never do that. We have to think that there is something of Herod in all of us. There is something in us that is resistant to the reign of a king, resistant to the authority of a God who intervenes in human history and says, I am your creator, I am your Lord, and I am somebody to whom you should bow with allegiance and give yourself holy in worship. There are things within us that we want to protect, the things we strive for, the things we live for, the, the kingdoms that we try to build. And the arrival of Jesus is a legitimate threat to our man-made kingdom. It, it is. And there's something about that within us that's resistant. Another response we see is these scribes and these chief priests who know where the king is to be born. They're 10 kilometers, six miles away from the, the place of this new king arriving, and they don't seem to care. Uh, they don't pack up their bags and get all their people and make their way to Bethlehem. They just know the Bible. They have a religious system. They're leaders within that religious system. They have ways of understanding reality, and they have kind of a world that works for them. And so when they hear about this king, they're kind of more content with the religious structures that they've built and the religious society that they're a part of and the sort of comforts of that system where they're not even interested. They have some degree of indifference, some degree of apathy to the arrival of this king. And then there are these magi from the east who have packed up everything and who have given themselves and reoriented the whole of their life to pursue the presence of this new king and then to offer their lives, their gifts, their treasures in an act of worship to him. And I think that's the question we have to sit with today. We have to sit with that question. How will I respond? How am I responding to the news of the arrival of a king? What do I do with that? What within me is resistant? What within me wants to kind of hold on to my life, my value set, my way of thinking? What in me is resistant to his reign and the things he calls me to, the way of life he calls me to, the degree of worship and surrender that he calls me to? There are things within me and within you that are resistant. Where are those places of resistance? Where are the places where we are more, put more energy towards building our own kingdom than actually coming to this king in worship, admiration, and joy? And where are the areas where I'm indifferent? Uh, this is what I see so culturally, even within our own church family and my own heart. We can sort of walk through the motions, like I know this passage, and I've studied the Bible, and you've studied the Bible, and this is familiar, and we offer gifts, and we do our liturgy. All of that stuff matters, and we gather together. We have traditions, and that's great, but does the news of the arrival of Jesus mean anything for your actual life? Is there anything in me that's saying this presence of this king and this degree of love needs to redirect and shape things or do I walk away from this time indifferent, unmoved, unchanged? I think that's a real possibility for many of us that we walk through the season and we walk away unchanged. 
And my hope for us is that we would actually have the response of these magi, of these wise men from the East who radically reoriented all of their life to pursue the presence of this king. Radically reorienting their life. They had to sell goods. They had to leave things behind. They had to change everything. They had to give up years of their life in pursuit of this king. And they didn't do it as a begrudging kind of like obligation. They did it with joy, with hunger, with diligence, with fervor. And when they found him, it was worth it. They rejoiced. They rejoiced with exceeding joy. And in seeing him, they took the whole of their lives, everything that they had brought with them, and said, these are yours You are our God. In their act of worship, they are offering him all of their lives, all the things that they knew that God had given them. They offer them to this Jesus for his glory and for the glory of his kingdom. And that to me is something I just want us to sit with today is what would it look like? And what would it look like for us to be so moved by God's love for us, God's pursuit of us, by the incarnation of the Son of God, that we would radically reorient our lives around his presence and that we would surrender all that he has given us as an act of worship to say, Jesus, my life, my family, my job, my goods, my time, my energy, they are all yours. And that we would take the treasures of life that he has given us and lay them at the feet of Jesus and say, this is yours. Take my life and let it be ever only all for thee. This is for you. My life is for you and for your glory. And so that's the question I want you to sit with today that we need to sit with today on the second day of Christmas is how will we reorient our lives around the presence of Jesus and how will we offer our lives in an act of worship to this newborn king? And so I'm gonna pray for us and give us a moment to consider that reality and then we'll celebrate communion together. Um, Jesus, we right now confess that we need you. Uh, We need you to awaken within us a thrill of hope that the weariness that we feel in the midst of the broken world that we're in would give way to a rejoicing, that we would see your love for us, your pursuit of us, your condescension and humility and taking on flesh to dwell among us, and that we would come to you, and that we would radically reorient the whole of our lives around your presence, and that we would see that the life you've given us, the time, the energy, the moment in history, the family, the job, the resources, the love, the gifts that you've given us and that we would say, Jesus, my life is yours. Where do you want to lead me? What do you want to do in me? What do you want to change within me? What do you want to reorient in my life? What do you need to redirect in my agenda, in my passions for life? What needs to change? What needs to die? What do you want to grow up within me? And so Holy Spirit, even now, would you speak to us in these moments? Speak to us to show us areas in our life where we can turn to you. We, we need to turn to you. Things we've been building in our own power that we need to let go of in ways that we can prioritize your presence and your kingdom in our lives. And so help us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.